Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves podcast where we talk all things relational. And there's so much value to be found in assessing our relationship or our challenges, let's call them, in our relationship to anything, you know, whether it be food, water, I was about to say water, your relationship to water should be hydrated. That's the only way it should be. Um, food, money, uh, drugs, sex, but people, you know, people really magnify it. That's where romantic relationships offer us such a window into ourselves. And, you know, I think about my own assessment of where codependency can live within my life. Cause you know, the really codependency is where we are willing to abandon ourselves in order to stay connected to another. And so we prioritize being connected to them over being connected to us. And I noticed that show up in fear about having conversations that are hard talking about subjects that are scary but I know that if I only did things for applause or to be liked, I'd never really get to fully be me. And I'd also never make mistakes. And I'd also never be invited to find new language and new conversations and new ways of being. It's kind of like if I'm always defensive or critical in conflict, then I'm never going to know what the deeper intimacy is that lies beyond not being defensive, learning how to heal that way of being in relationship. And the model of relationship that we were taught, that we have inherited, that we have observed, that we generally participate in is codependency. It's what we're taught through the patriarchy. And that's for both genders. Any combination of genders is, is self-abandonment in order to be in relationship. Not knowing how do I be me? How do I be a fully expressed self and be in relationship. I'm either really good at being alone or really good at being in love, which I would say the really good at being in love part is usually enmeshment and self-abandonment. And so the subject of codependency is an important one to look at. You know, I look at, I gave the example of speaking out, you know, on the podcast, sharing things maybe that would not be liked. 
But also I noticed codependency in my relationship to alcohol. Like I, when I asked myself, why am I afraid to stop drinking? Cause it wasn't like my life was falling down the tubes or I was blacking out. Like I had by every external definition, a healthy relationship with alcohol. Um, but what I noticed is that I was afraid about how it would affect other people and what they might think and feel because of my choice to quit drinking. And I realized in that moment, that was self-abandonment. That's codependency. So I was like, I have to stop just to sit in the suffering and the fear of disappointing other people and having other people's feelings come up for them because of my choice. And that's ultimately what we seek to learn how to do is how do I express myself at the potential cost of losing you, but I stay connected to me. And that's how we go deeper in love. That's how we go deeper in connection is the willingness to have conversations that can fracture the relationship because they're very much the ones that deepen it. And that's calling ourselves towards truth. That's calling our relationships towards truth and calling the realities out of how we show up and who we actually are. That's why none of this is about really relationship to other. It's always about how our relationship to other people and things actually show and demonstrate our relationship to ourselves, the true relationship we have to ourselves and our self-worth and our sovereignty and our self-expression and our authenticity and how all of those commingle and influence each other. And then of course, how the systems we've been taught to operate in influence us too, and how all of those things play into our day-to-day lives and how we handle conflict and our ability or inability to have hard conversations. I've had um, Terry Cole on before because she's been such a popular guest because she's an expert in codependency and she uh, for, you know, terms high-functioning codependency, people who would have no clue that they're codependent. So I wanted to bring her back on to talk about some myths about codependency, some things that we don't know that we think we know and some ways in which we are codependent that we don't even realize. So I was excited to have her back on because... I saw that, you know, I identify as a recovering codependent and I realized that, you know, I've been able to change. I've been able to learn how to observe my codependent behaviors and not let them choose for me or identify them after they've shown up and then change them. And I wish the same for everybody because to abandon self for other is a really tough, lonely space to live in, even if you're in relationship, because you don't feel connected to yourself. And I say that from having been that. And so I created a course with Terry Cole and you can go to crushcodependency.com, check it out, find out more about it and sign up because it's it's been an epic journey to teach that with her and such a, an honor. And so I don't want to hold anything back without further ado. Here's Terry Cole and our jam on codependency. I am here with... This is three times now, right? Three times, guess? I believe it is. Triple charm over here. I'm pretty excited to have Terry Cole on the podcast. Welcome back. Well, thanks, pal. I'm psyched to be back. You know, the last episode we did that was about high-functioning codependency really rocked some people. And if you're listening and you haven't listened to that one, well, listen to this one first and then go back to that one and get doubled down on why we are all on some level codependent, you know, that's, that's fair to say. I believe it is. And also why you and I are particularly obsessed with decoding and teaching about codependency. 
Right. Like the essence of freedom is, is recognizing these unconscious hooks, these unconscious behavioral patterns that are not, you know, for you and I, you know, there's such a passion in it because it's not just romantic relationships. This is a collection of behaviors and patterns that really sort of unconsciously rule our lives and our behaviors and manifest as beliefs like, oh, you know, it's so hard to find a, a good guy or, you know, like whatever it is that gets in the way. And, you know, it's I find that very fascinating. Me too. And it's easy to look outside. And I think so much of when you really start to understand uh, the myths about codependency that are out there, you you really get that it's really an inside job and that you can learn how to unlearn these unhealthy behaviors when you look in. And I mean, a lot of times you just need a good guide or two good guides, just saying. Yeah, we are so obsessed about the subject of codependency and boundaries uh, that we created a course together called Crush Codependency. To all of you listening, go to crushcodependency.com and check it out. The which, what a great title, by the way. Who doesn't want to crush codependency? I um, so we're talking about the myths about codependency. And I think one of the first ones that is really relevant to all the people listening, I, I feel like the identification of being codependent feels like you're suffering from some sort of ailment, that you have a diagnosable disease, you know? And, I, you know, that's one of the first ones. So do you want to shed some light on that? Yeah, Uh Codependency is learned behavioral patterns. So it really is not uh, a diagnosable. It's not in the DSM-5. If you looked it up in the diagnostic manual that, you know, physicians and psychiatrists and therapists use, it won't be there. But it is learned behavior, just like every other dysfunctional learned behavior. If you really want to, you can unlearn it. But I think that is a big myth. Like, once you're codependent, always codependent. It's just the way you are. That is definitely not true. Yeah, it's like the idea of attachment styles. You know, someone learns their attachment, their style, and they're like, I'm just anxiously attached. And it's like, no, you're just prone to being anxious when you're insecure. But everyone can learn healthy, secure attachment. Everyone can learn how to have healthy interdependence. And, and, you know, there's some things that people just don't really understand about it. You know, I think one of the other ones is that when we think of codependency, we tend to think of it being female, you know, a female ailment. Men, we are just by, you know, we just happen to not have it. Isn't that lucky? That's a blessing. That's so not true. <laughs> that, that's not. And I have had so many clients over the years, men and women, who suffer from codependency, but I feel like with men, because the same thing with men who are who are empaths, who are very empathic or highly sensitive people, there's almost like a, a negative bias against, it's like men are, you're like a wuss or you're like weak or something like that, which is not true at all. If my husband was not prone, if he was not an empath, he would definitely not be my person, right? <laughs> if he wasn't sensitive and um, tuned into my feelings, I would not want to be with him. So I think it's a strength, but I do think that you're right, that there is a myth that it's like women are only, we're the only ones who are codependent, which is not true. Although we are without a doubt actively trained to be codependent. I mean, that's yes. a fact. 
Yeah, because if you look at it from a heteronormative sense, the training of gender roles and gender roles in relationship, I mean, women are trained to be caretakers, to manage the family, to build community, to be the person in charge of the emotional experiences of everyone, especially the husband, to, you know, oscillate around the husband and make sure his needs are taken care of. You know, I think the the death of the patriarchy is a gift to everybody because now, as you said, you know, men now can have an emotional experience and not be considered a wuss, that they don't have to be stoic providers, that they can actually learn to depend on other people too, but not to, you know, because that's that codependency, you know, where it's like the male is generally emotionally unavailable and the female is chasing emotional connection. And, and chasing it from someone who's been socialized not to have it, and, you know, it just creates that same pattern of pursuing unavailability, trying to fix, trying to heal. Yes. And another myth is about codependency is that people feel that if they cure their codependency or crush it in our case, that they will be unloving. It, it, it means that they will be selfish. It's similar to people feeling like good boundaries makes them like confrontational and all of these things. But let's get real about the truth there, which is that if you are codependent in a relationship, you're basically managing, attempting to manage the other person. And when you really think about what that is, I mean, is that shit loving? No, and it's no. a lot of fucking work. Oh, who the hell has the bandwidth? But <laughs> think about it, right? Think about what that really is. It's, it is managing this is what i learned growing up just by watching my mother like she didn't like tell me hey this is the way to be but hi as children they don't have to we just watch them and go oh obviously this is the way to be female she's my mother that's what i'll do where i never learned about having this a direct sort of a heart centered authentic relationship. I, I became an expert by the time i was in my early 20s i was an expert at manipulating the men in my life. And of course, it took a lot of therapy to undo that, but to do it in a way that I thought was um, appropriate. I didn't, I really had, of course, no idea until I was kind of deep into therapy, how much that was just straight up codependency. So let, let's talk a little bit about what it is. So we're, we're hitting the myths, but you know, maybe someone is new here and they're like, codependency, what are you talking about? What mm -hmm. is it? I believe codependency, or in my estimation, being a therapist for 20-something years, is that it's really being overly invested in the feeling states and the outcomes and the choices of other people. And when I say overly invested, I really mean you almost feel like those feeling states, those choices, those consequences, those outcomes are your own. Mm -hmm. So if someone you love is in a situation it, it, the onus feels like it's on you to like figure out what they should do and you need to do it now. And there's an urgency, a fear, an aggressive drive to get it done. That in my estimation is what one, one way of describing codependency. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, when that pivoting, shaping your own world to fit theirs, I think of like, not separating what you like from what they like, you know, becoming this chameleon in order to keep the peace, in order to 
you know, exist in this experience where your life is structured around the problems and feelings and solving and all the things with other people. And I, I feel like there's a moment we hit that is relationally sort of a rock bottom, which is you feel like you forgot about yourself. Like you probably never even had a self. And so for the people listening, if any of what Terry's saying is resonating, there's probably a beautiful level of invitation now to figure out who you are, what you want, why you do that. And we do that in the course where we go through the process of, you know, it's often, as Terry was saying, like observing her mom, what role did a woman need to play? It's the same, you know, I think about my childhood being the youngest in my family. I really felt, although it was not, you know, a job explicitly given to me, I felt responsible for my mother's emotions for like, you know, she had three kids and she, you know, was stressed as anyone would be with three kids, especially loud ones. And she, you know, she would, I could feel the anxiety in her, the fluctuations of emotion. And I felt it was my responsibility to soothe her and to like manage her, you know, which, which made that made my life really about other people's feelings, which, you know, when you said, I learned how to really manipulate men, I, I mean, I was in sales. I knew how to manipulate behavior, but I also knew how to gaslight. <laughs> I also knew how to manipulate for sure, you know, to like manage their needs, oscillate around their needs, have horrible boundaries. I didn't even have a boundary. My boundary was a heel on my forehead, which <laughs> might sound hot to other people, but this was not a sexy kind of heel on the forehead. This was... <laughs> I don't know that there's ever a time for a sexy heel on the forehead, but I'm sure some people are into that. (laughs) I think that going back though to the childhood stuff, there's also this myth that if you, you know, if you're not involved with an active addict right now, if you didn't grow up in in an active alcoholic or addicted system, like those are the only situations that mean you're in a codependent relationship. They're the only things that cause it and there this is what it what it becomes in your adult life and that really isn't true around when you think about codependency you don't have to be involved with an addict and you don't have to have been raised in an alcoholic system because lots of other dysfunctions even just a family that has super high goals Ones where you're like, ugh, I'm never, ever meeting those. <laughs> or, or the anxiety of like oh, never wanting to fall short and being the straight A student, but never feeling like even that was enough. The, all of those things, again, think about what is it? But yes, there's nothing wrong with wanting to do well in school, but there is something wrong with the perfectionism that can come along with that. And again, it is organizing around someone else's wants, needs, desires. So you go from childhood of doing that into adulthood. But again, that myth that it you, you are like the long suffering person, you know, the the uh, the other part of someone who is a, you know, a decade long alcoholic, and that's the only way that you can be codependent. And I do believe that is very much this old school understanding of codependency. And hey, this is how we started understanding codependency. So it isn't like that isn't true. You may be involved with an addict, but if you're not, and you're sort of thinking, oh, that's someone else. What I'm saying is no, it does not have to be that at all. 
And what I've found in my um, therapy practice is that I had a very particular kind of client who didn't identify at all. I was observing codependent behaviors left and right, but the women in my practice were really high functioning. They were, they were very, very capable. So they were rocking their careers and doing the thing with the kids and taking care of their parents and doing the other stuff. But the reality was they were still codependent because their main focus was on managing still the feeling states, the outcomes, the choices of other people. And, you know, when you, when you have minor kids, we're really not talking about that right now because it's too, it's too hard to decipher. Listen, you're a parent, you're fully responsible for them. Forget it. Like their outcomes are your outcomes to a degree. There is a way to parent that you don't make them actually be your outcome where you let a kid have those, you know, their own consequences, which is very helpful to not raise codependent, codependent people. But there's something really important about this high functioning aspect of it, because it was so prevalent Anytime I would bring it up, they would say, what are you, nuts? I, hello, I'm the person who does it all. I'm the one who fixes it. I have it all else. together. And also, everyone comes to me is what they were really saying. And I was like, listen, everyone coming to you does not mean you're not codependent. It means you're really highly functional. So anyway, I changed an, I changed the name to high-functioning codependency, which is a lot of what I teach in my courses and what we talk about. Because I wanted the people who were suffering to understand that there's nothing, there's no weakness to you if you identify as a codependent or a high-functioning codependent. This is like any other dysfunction. Mm -hmm. if it is causing you pain. Your inability to control the outcomes, the feeling states, and the decisions of others, that just means you're human. And the unlearning process, which we do talk about in Crushing Codependency and we teach, is about understanding that that is not your side of the street. And what a relief, right? Yeah, knowing that there's a validation of your behavioral pattern that that is not shame-based. It's like when we can learn that the very things we do as adults in the patterns of relationship are really to protect ourselves from being hurt. There are ways that we learn to survive. There are survival strategies that became identities, you know, in some sense, like a perfectionist. And I love that you said that it doesn't have to be something that oscillates around an addict. It could be your parent had a chronic illness. It could be that or someone in your family. It could be that you had a brother or sister who was in a lot of trouble and the family pivoted around their needs. It can be that you had no one around to hear your needs. You know, so it can be so many different ways. And I always like to think like we get lost in the pathology rather than just the surrendering to what is true. Like I don't have a reason, you know, I grew up with quote unquote a healthy childhood. So if I believed that it was only with addict parents or this or that or unhealthy or angry or narcissistic parents, I wouldn't have been able to identify that my behavior pattern, where it came from. But you don't need to know where something comes from to know that it's unhealthy and it requires changing. You just need to know that you're tired of the results you're getting and how you're feeling in relationship, which might be like depleted, exhausted resentment. Resentment is such a good sign that you, you are putting everyone ahead of yourself. Exactly. And you know how you feel. I totally agree, Mark. It doesn't, you know, 
being like, but I need to know exactly. Sometimes when I teach this, people are like, well, I can't find the original injury exactly. I'm like, mm-hmm. you 100% do not need to, because like you, I grew up in a pretty healthy family as well, healthy ish, right? Doing air you know, quotes. Air quotes. You- this. These are air quotes, heavy air quotes. <laughs> I actually did it like four times. So really heavy air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, it, it's also not, uh, we're not condemning. Our families, we're not condemning our folks. We're not, we're literally not your job in your life. If you feel unsatisfied in your relationships, if you feel taken advantage of, if you feel resentment, if you feel underappreciated, so many of those things, because for me, that, that, that was the end of the road was, you know, you start off where you're like, I'm just a helper. That's just my personality. Mm. And it's true, <laughs> right? It actually is true. I'm still Think a helper. All the coaches, nurses, psychology, you know, if you're in a job that is structured around helping and serving, you're likely codependent. You just get paid for it. Exactly. And that is very, very, what do we call that? It's really the highest, it's like the highest defense mechanism of like sublimation where you're taking a thing that could really be your undoing. And maybe personally it is your undoing and it might be your undoing professionally too. I've had many clients, one you know, ER nurse was just exhausted and only came in to see me finally because she couldn't sleep for like three years straight and was like, I think it's menopause. I was like, oh, I, I yeah. And, <laughs> and this massive tendency towards codependency and self-abandonment Mm-hmm. So it's it's also another myth is that you know people who are codependent are, are just like I said I'm just loving I'm just a lover I'm just a helper classic like that's, that's classic just- righteous identification <laughs> not even righteous but an identity that keeps them safe in their behavior patterns to not have the responsibility of boundaries of reclaiming themselves the very way they identify is they might as well just throw themselves in front of people you know it's i just tell people i just i'm just drawn to people who need me that's how you know though you're like wired for it because it's uh, a friend of mine said you know it's like when she met her now ex-husband it was as if they they silently exchanged th- these words. He was like, wow, I'm so effing broken. And she was like, great. I can't <laughs> wait to spend the rest of my life trying to fix you. Like, oh. you know, and that really is what we're doing. But let, let's look at the, the myth of the fear of if I'm not codependent, that I'm not loving. Because if we get real, if we're going to have a little Jersey real talk right now <laughs> about codependency, when we are trying to um, covertly control others, we are not relating to them for where they are. We're not respecting that they know what's best for them. Mm-hmm. We're so uncomfortable in their, what we think is their disastrous train wreck of a situation that we just want our own discomfort to stop. And it doesn't mean that you're not a loving person, but being in a healthy relationship means being able to tolerate feelings that are uncomfortable. And literally, you got to know, what is my responsibility? What is the other person's responsibility? And you are not developing deeply intimate relationships 
if down deep you are working overtime mm-hmm. to con- covertly control what the other person does. Does that make sense? Do you think we need an example there, Mark? Do you, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, let's go to an example. I think the the reality that you don't have time to breathe, you don't get to be loved yourself. I mean, that, you know, this idea that codependency in and of itself is, but it's not damaging to be codependent. It's not but of course it is. It's highly disruptive to the immune system for sure. I don't have the research to back up what I'm about to say, but I am almost 100% certain that it's true. And if you're research-based and you're like, that's not research-based, I have enough samples and data that I would imagine, this is like the most evident, worst evidence-based statement, but I would imagine that there is a much higher correlation of autoimmune in people who are codependent And I would imagine that there is, I mean, irritable bowel syndrome is somewhat an autoimmune, but that those correlations that it would be, I would almost, I would put money on that truth because in self-abandonment, you know, you think about autoimmune is really the body's at war with itself. You think of the very, like, it's trying to tell us stuff, which... Mm -hmm. We don't need to get into the spiritual meaning of illnesses, but the the body, when it's in a state of abandonment, conflict, um, not feeling safe, it's in fight, flight, freeze. And, and, you know, there is research to show that high conflict relationships actually increase leaky gut and delay healing. That's research-based. So well, it would just I, totally make yes. sense. No, I, I think that that's correct. And I can just tell you again, I didn't do a huge study. <laughs> I didn't do a blind study, but I have worked with clients for 23 years. And a lot of times these highly functioning women would come to me because finally their body mm-hmm. was fully expressing what they had been trying to keep doing for so very long where it was autoimmune disorders, it was migraine headaches, it was irritable bowel, it was chronic fatigue, right? When you're going, 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 and you're like, I'm managing my life and your life and 75 other people's lives, you're like, maybe I need to be sick. And this is, of course, unconscious, obviously, and again, not data-based, but Louise Hay believed it and I believed her, but that there's something about my God, I have to stop. I I have to think about myself and think about when we get ill or when we can't keep up that pace of over-functioning, over-giving, over-doing, over-worrying that when the body gives out, we have no choice but to look in. And I have a feeling from what I've done for all these decades that it literally is the universe, God, your angels, whoever you want to say, being like, I was tapping you on the shoulder. <laughs> you didn't listen. I kept tapping. I was like, psst, psst. and suddenly I was like, I had to kick you down a flight of stairs. <laughs> that became the thing that would stop you and make you look like what actually needs your attention. You do. That's and, that and- question. Yeah. I love that. That poignant moment that says, what about me? Yes. Moving into other myths. What other ones do we got right here at the top? Did we want to give an example of oh, yeah. the previous one? We do. Of the overgiving, not having, because I was saying it didn't have, a, we think it doesn't have consequences, but you were talking about, we were talking about like the empathic, I just show, I just love. Yep. I got it. So let's say you are in partnership with someone and you take on all of these, this, you know, invisible 
labor, so much of it, right? We talk about emotional labor. So they're at work. Oh, someone's having a baby at work. You're like, don't worry. I'll get the present. I'll get the thing. I'll do the thing. Mm-hmm. I'll keep in touch so with your family. I'll make sure that the vacations, I'll make sure you don't forget your mother's birthday or that we don't. What ends up happening is A, you are treating your partner like they're an infant. Like, I don't trust you to do it. So I'm going to do it is one way of looking at that. Even though you can be like, no, I like to do those things. Trust me, two decades later, you won't because the person expects it. You train people to teach you a particular way. So what starts out as, I do this because it's loving. That's what we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. But when we're constantly cleaning up someone else's side of the street, right? So think of that, right? You're responsible for your side, keeping it clean. When you're all over town, cleaning up every neighborhood, (laughs) you're friggin' tired. And then you're like, I can't believe what a slobs they are. And I can't believe they didn't, but you're offering. So much of the time when we're really suffering from codependency, we are doing things no one has asked us to do. And we're definitely doing things that people can, should, and need to be doing for themselves, to have an equal relationship. Think about, you know, right? Codependency is like having power over others. And even it may not seem that way if you don't feel empowered right now. But think about what I'm saying. I promise you it's true. Well, it's interesting because in the what feels like disempowerment and the victim, the righteous plat space to hold is actually how we get our needs met in some level. So it keeps us safe. So it's actually a powerful position playing off as powerless. And that's why it feels like we give all of our power away, but in some way we're maintaining a familiar certain outcome, which keeps us safe. But, you know, I've said many times before, we'd rather be in familiar suffering than uncertainty that gives us everything we want. And, you know, to share like currently in the, I don't know, recombining, re, I don't know, getting back together with my, my past partner. Yes. Interesting to, I don't know, I was trying to find the right word for that reunion, maybe reunion. Anyways. Reuniting. Um, yeah, reuniting. What I notice, because I've been paying attention to my uh, body as it, feelings come up, is I notice the codependent part of me that when she is d- dis- displaying or in a place, space of power and independence, I respect and love that and celebrate that. And there's a part of my body that's anxious about it, that wants to like check in and wants to overfunction. And I have to, I'm constantly monitoring the little boy in me who, if I do that, I'm actually saying, I don't trust you in your power, which of course, what it does is it creates that patriarchal status, a hierarchy in the relationship again. And thank God I have at least friends and a partner who will call me out on that, but that I have created the space within myself to have the mindfulness to just like pay attention to those anxieties and look for what they actually, why they're there, not just assume, but trust that my body is, I'm having to heal things, which means I have to sit in spaces I've literally never sat in, in like watching this powerful woman and being like, I'm more powerful because she's powerful. Like that's actually what's occurring, but because I'm afraid of being left abandoned, all the things are not chosen. I often default to not choosing myself to keep the relationship dynamic, power dynamic of need me 
don't leave me. So it's really interesting. So if someone's listening and they're like, oh, fuck, I do that. Yeah, you know, we all do in some way or another if we're prone to not being the problem, but rather the fixer of the problem. Yes, but you, you made such a great point of the the need to be needed is so is such a part of being a human, but it's also such a part when it's extreme of the dysfunction of codependency. And it's, we have a need to be needed above a need to take care of ourselves. We have a need to fix others' problems above the desire to know ourselves, to get our own needs met. It's almost like this, as long as we can avoid conflict, as long as there isn't a problem, whatever I need to, how often I need to throw myself under the bus, that's okay. But again, why we created this course is that truth is that you cannot do that forever. And if you do, you're literally talking about being in an unhealthy relationship. And in the end, there's not much left for yourself. Like your relationship with yourself, when you when you really do crush codependency, you learn that prioritizing yourself, part of what we do in the course is just get you dialed into your preferences, right? Your desires, your needs, your wants. And people, I remember, I was, I'm actually writing a book about boundaries and I was talking about codependency in the book. And the editor was like, I don't understand what, what this okay and not okay list, what does this have to do with boundaries? And I was like, first of all, you don't need to. So whatever, trust you me. You might when want I to read you. this part if you're trying to take it out of the book. <laughs> but I was like, a book on boundaries has to start with knowing yourself. Mm-hmm. And when we are highly codependent, we don't because we've become experts on other people's behaviors, their cues, their needs, their facial expression, micro facial expressions, shift in mood. Like we could definitely use this stuff for bad things if we wanted to. Like you said, you were in sales because we know, we read people, we know them. And yet we don't know ourselves. It's like becoming an expert at like humankind and other people and forgetting to to put ourselves on the top of that list. Mm, that's what makes, like we talk about this in the course, but the idea that what was your survival strategy when you nurture it and you rescue yourself and you reclaim yourself or give birth to yourself or whatever the words you want to use, as soon as you do that, you realize that you forgot yourself long ago and there's often a big grieving process, at least there has been for me, of like, whoa, I never really prioritized me and look at all the pain I've experienced on my own and likely just created the narrative for other people that they're broken, they're a problem, they're not, you know, that they're stuck in the same trap because I have an allegiance to my own need to fix. And uh, we talk about this in the, that when you can, when you can, harness your survival strategy it becomes your superpower and that's when you from a whole place are looking at other people's hearts and experiences as you said you become a a human behavior expert in so many ways because you're attuned to the nuances of patterns and behavior because you did it for survival but imagine if you could collect that data and use it to help people to to but not do it unless they ask or you ask permission Yes. And we can also rephrase it. We can say that we use that information to deeply know the people we say that we love. 
Mm. And you know who you don't deeply know? Anyone you're codependently trying to control. So true. And they never feel accepted for who they are. Because the whole problem is that they always have something to fix. You know, it's like whack-a-mole. They're like, but I, nothing I ever do is enough. And the codependent person is like, I know, that's how I keep us. This is great. <laughs> Here's another book you need to read. You have got a lot of problems. Can't you just appreciate me? You know. I'm saving you. Hello. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to send you an invoice. Unbelievable. So, right, I mean, there is the, the myth that, that people who are codependent are weak. You know, and I, I think that's important that, you know, as you said, like for men, it's often this idea that we're wussies, but just in general, that there's a weakness associated with it when, when there really isn't. No, there's not. And in fact, it takes, I can tell you, cause I was, and so can you, cause I was very masterful at being a high functioning codependent that it's unbelievable the bandwidth that as a functioning codependent, you have to take in the feeling states, the information, the lives of other people. Like it takes an incredible amount of strength, but actually it's your strength that's being misused. And the reason why we're talking about myths today is because so many of you listening, all your hearts are as Mark and mine, as we were, are in the right place. You are loving. You are good people. You really want to love your people the best that you can. Hmm. And I remember a, um, a friend saying to me, well, I mean, I can't let, you know, she had infantilized the crap out of her son. And, you know, she was like, I was like, you, he's you, he needs to move out from what you're telling me. She was like, what do you think? I was like, listen, you've told me. It's not what I think. I'm just going to tell you what you've told me. How about that? He, he's not motivated. He's smoking weed all day. He's like waking up at two. He's, you know, and this, it wasn't like a 19 year old home for the summer. Like this was a 24 year old <laughs> graduated college, like someone who come on now. And I was like, listen, you need to pick a date. And you, this is my, you're asking my professional opinion. My professional opinion would be lovingly agree on a date. And then you can't change your mind. And then when the day came close, she was like, I can't throw him out on the street. I was like, no, but you can, because he's got friends and he'll go on a couch and he'll couch surf because there's a whole freaking website that he could do. Like you can't stand to not be his savior. And you are not doing him any favors. You love him. Don't you want him to function? P.S. You're not going to be here forever. Like when you do these codependent things, I was saying to her, what you're saying to him, I don't, I know you don't, maybe you don't think this, but how it, how it reads is you think he's a loser. You literally think he's incapable. Mm. Do you think that? She's like, well, I don't know. I was like, well, don't you think he has a right to find out? And of course he's not incapable. He's watched you. You and her husband are both high functioning people. Like you think you're doing it out of love, but you're really not. And I mean, through time and therapy, she was able to sort of unpack like, wow, I had such a profound need to be needed that I was letting my pothead 24 year old live in the basement to everyone's detriment. And sure, he's 24. He could have moved out, but he was used to her doing everything because you got she to just did. kick in and smoke weed and not have a job. I mean, that is that overfunctioning just uh, keeps enabling and giving permission. 
Yes, it does. Eventually he moved out and I think she cried. He was like, I think this is going to be great. (laughs) He's like, finally, you know, I find that is true that finally when the codependent person stands up for themselves in whatever way that means, which really just means reclaim self, declare self, has boundaries. The other people are like, yeah, finally, like I've been waiting my whole life for someone to call my ass out to like invite me to complete myself, you know, like this idea that, as you said, this perpetuating idea that we through our own behavior, not from a bad place, but we perpetuate the belief in them that they're broken and are incapable of doing it themselves. It's like when I hear someone constantly booking things for the other person, booking a therapy session, booking, oh, you didn't do it? I'll do it. Don't worry. And it's like, no, make people show up for themselves. If they can't, that's okay. But it's not your job. Are you going to spend your life like being everyone else's admin assistant? Yeah, but they are. And here's the thing. It's interesting you say that because as a licensed psychotherapist, we do not, I will not make an appointment with someone's significant other for the significant other. I say, please, please give that person my number because at the very least, they need to be motivated enough to make the effing call. You think that person's going to do any work when he gets into my office and sits on my couch? He's not, trust me, or she's not. And it's like this control thing or trying to get information, Mm, right? Being like, "I I was calling and, you know, it's okay with Bob. Hey, you know what, man? But P.S. not okay with me. So if you want to come in and have a session with you and Bob, perhaps we can talk about that. Or I can recommend a couple therapists. But um, like literally, Bob was so like like indoctrinated into the this one knows best mm. that he was wanting me to talk to the other person about his therapy. I was like, no way in hell am I doing that. That's so unhealthy. Amazing how it ends up being that then the consequence, as you said, about his own belief that the other, his partner knew best, is they don't actually cultivate authority over their own lives. They don't have sovereignty over themselves, much like the codependent person doesn't either. But that in the no sovereignty over either self is enmeshment and the complete, the relationship is just this all-consuming thing, you know? It's this all-consuming bubble that both people's identities probably have never existed within. And then you think about couples uh, that have been together for a long time in codependent relationships. I usually see this occurs after about three or four years, is that the relationship often then loses all passion, which I don't want to confuse this with the honeymoon phase of a relationship transitioning into like a more long-term, beautiful, best friendship that still has attraction. Mm-hmm. And this is normal. Just so you're listening, if you're listening, you're like, fuck, that happened to me. Yes, it's normal that codependent relationships lose fire because there's no space between us and the other person. So why would you be attracted to someone you blame for not loving yourself? Like, you don't want to have sex with them. You know, why would you? And so in that rediscovery of yourself and the development of boundaries and sort of rescuing yourself from codependence is all of a sudden a creation of more passion, more aliveness and the invitation to the other partner to start booking their own shit. And and I was thinking about that when you said that booking the schedule for the partner, you actually rob them of the beautiful self-love and responsibility that gets deposited in our own account when we go, 
I made a call because I care about me and I care about us. You take that away from them, and I know it's not your fault, but we take it away from them when that is like some of the most important work of someone getting up off the couch is like finally they have to call a friend and say, hey, do you mind if I crash on your couch for a couple of weeks as I find an apartment or whatever it is? Yep. But part of the, the codependent process is really, and we explore this in the course as well, is who am I if I'm not the fixer, the doer, the rock that everyone comes to? And for me personally, I really had to, that, that was a deep dive into, I was very attached to that identity of I wanted to be the one I yeah, wanted. To I get be that. One, you know, I and mean, I have a whole brand built around needing that. So yeah, I get it. You know, <laughs> as I feel the healing of myself, the the writing about transitions and struggles and challenges comes from a place of uh, unconditional love, as opposed to like need. You know, when I first started, I remember having this moment of. Like I could write what I know people would like, or I can write what I know is true for me. Mm-hmm. And that, there was a moment where I was like, I'm not writing for likes. I'm just writing to change a life. One. And, you know, is seemingly as soon as I transitioned from like, you know, you could write any post about, you know, female empowerment or a poem about that. And you're going to get lots of likes, which makes a lot of sense. And that's a beautiful thing, but there's also to write about things that challenge the way people think is not always going to be celebrated, but it will cause shifts in people. And so I it's also recognize loving. that. You know what I mean, Mark? When you, when you think about it, it's it's loving and in sharing both, both of us in the course and here and in you know our talks together privately, publicly, in, I always felt, even though I'm a licensed psychotherapist, like um, I'm a lifelong learner, right? Mm-hmm. When I, I'm so fascinated by the process of transformation and evolution, my own and all my clients for the past two decades and all of that, that it's available to everyone. And I think that the thing that never gets old for me with curing anything, we happen to be talking about codependency today, but but anything that is, you know, my trip is lessening, t- helping to teach you to lessen your own suffering and increase your own joy. Mm-hmm because it's possible. And I remember in therapy when I was 19, when I first went and I remember saying to her, do you think people can change? You know? And she was like, uh, yeah, hello. <laughs> I do. Cause that's what I do for a living. And I was like, but really? And she was like, of course. And as I moved in and started changing and having these realizations that just because I had been a particular way, and of course it took all of my twenties to, to deal with the codependency stuff though, because I was, I was so young when I got in, but I handled my addiction issues young. So stop drinking when I was 21, because that, that's what I was talking about. Such then. a mature choice when you're young. It's a weird choice. I don't, I don't even know. I happened to have a therapist who just confronted me and was like, what you're describing is alcoholic behavior. I was like, well, I am a senior in college. Isn't everyone an alcoholic in college? Like, I don't know. I feel like that's probably true, but it's socially rewarded. It is. But she was kind of like, well, I don't know if everyone is, but you're really just, I'm just talking about you because you're my client. And if you don't seek help with the 12-step program, I'll have to terminate our relationship. Wow. That's some boundaries. I like that. It's like, 
is she even allowed to do that? I literally, <laughs> I was like, hi, I'm calling the therapy police. Like you're allowed to just break up with me. If you want to, if I don't do what you want. But it did. Of course, it made me realize she was like, well, here's the thing. If you don't handle that, all the things that you want to change and the growth that you want won't happen because we'll spend all of our time putting out the fires that your addiction is lighting. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, I, I quit drinking a year and a half ago. But, you know, when I look back at things like college or decisions I made when I was younger under alcohol, you realize that, like, if you're black now and time traveling, which was like basically a Thursday, you know, it's you realize that there if you can't drink to a place where it's just there and and you don't need to binge. Because I always say to my, you know, to any of my friends or people who are inquiring about that, I'm always like, just follow the inquiry. Like you wouldn't be inquiring if there wasn't just a, a seed of truth, which doesn't mean you'll never have a healthy relationship to alcohol again. It's just saying, figure it out, look at it. What's below the escape, you know? And, Absolutely. and for me, it was being able to be completely present all the time and feelings I hadn't stayed present in which then again is all part of the process is your therapist had said, you know, the, the, you'll just be putting out fires and, and running away from feelings that actually have really valuable information. Exactly. Which bringing it back to our feelings, our fears, our anxiety is what drives the codependent behavior. So it's very easy to, to put this nice glossy frosting on it. That's like, no, I'm just a lover. But the truth is, if you can't stop the behavior, if you spend your, a lot of your bandwidth worrying about trying to convince people, looking up things on Google that they could look up themselves, underlining things in women who love too much, even though you're single or whatever, like you're trying to fix uh, the people, that is codependency. And that doesn't mean that when you stop doing those things because you have crushed it, that you're not loving. You'll be actually loving because you don't need to know better than your friend what she needs for her. Your friend's allowed to be in the space of, I don't know what to do. And when you love them and you're not actively codependent, you can say, well, let's talk about it. What do you think you should do? What is your gut instinct telling you? I know you're going to figure it out because it's your life and you're the only one who can. And I mean, even when friends ask me my opinion now, being a therapist, you know, lots of friends will come to me. I always go down a whole list of things to find out where they're at. But I would never have done that when I was a codependent. Anyone had a problem, they didn't even ask me. I was like, I know exactly what you should do. Well, I'm going to give you the answer. No <laughs> problem. Exactly. So, I mean, this is because you and I are both talking about still uncovering, you know, layers of, of codependency as you move through the world, as you move through your life and you heal different aspects of it. You know, there is this, I think what can feel like an impending or like heaviness to the idea that this, oh my God, this is going to take my whole lifetime to fucking deal with. I'd rather just stay codependent, you know, trying to fix other people is so much more interesting than helping heal myself. This is, why do I have to be the focus? And you know, that's certainly a myth, I think, that people experience. I agree. And there's also gradations, just like everything else. Think about when you first start 
if, if you were not physically fit and then you wanted to be, you didn't just change your mind. And then one day be like, Oh my God, look at me. I'm shredded. Like that isn't how it happens. It's, it's work and it's, it's a discipline, but you're worth it. And here's the thing, your future, healthy relationships, your future, happy balance. I don't mean happy all the time, but I mean, thriving family life is dependent on you figuring this piece out. It is so crucial to your happiness and to not, how about we just don't hand this down to the next generation? How about we love them enough to get our shit together when it comes to codependency so that they have healthy relationships from the get? Yeah. You think about the investment in ourselves, the like, do you want to have healthy relationships? Like it has a hundred percent direct correlative, that's kind of a word, impact to your health. You know, to the, we know that the quality of your relationships will be the largest contributor to the quality of your life when you look back, which, and I would argue that if you become a good communicator and deal with your codependencies, you'll see that results in amazing outcomes at work, amazing outcomes in friendships. Because the other myth is that codependency only exists in romantic relationship. And that is such a huge lie. I mean, I gotta tell you, female relationships, female friendships, holy drama, and so much codependency and triangulation and betrayal. It there's so much codependency because as women, we're we're taught to we're the bridgers, the assuagers, the the connectors. So we are so in it with our friends. But what we don't realize is that when we're in it and we think we know what they should do, even if your friend is in a bad relationship. Now, I'm not saying if she's someone's being, you know, abusive. I don't, I don't mean that. Then sometimes you do have to do a friendship intervention. It just happens. And it's still their choice. But mm-hmm. I'm just saying, if you feel like your friend is in a bad relationship, it's her life to figure out. And you can support her and you can be there to talk about it. But thinking that you know, because I had a brilliant therapist years ago, and this could be the the note we end on had said to me about, I was so codependent with my sisters and just trying to control the crap out of everybody's life. And she just said to me, what makes you think you know what Jamie needs to learn in this lifetime? Mm. What her lessons are. Mm. What makes you think you know, Tara? And I was like, well, I think we can all agree that she shouldn't (laughs) be with this idiot. She's like, no, I cannot agree. You know why? Because maybe that idiot is her biggest and best and most important teacher. And you're trying to convince her to do whatever you think she should do, but you're not her. And it really shifted like me from thinking of myself as like Mother Teresa to me being like, wow, I'm actually this covert control freak. How painful. Mm, My gosh, I think of how much we rob people of the opportunity to learn their own lessons, to feel what the truth feels like, to feel the bottoms. You know, I remember listening to Russell Brand speak and someone was asking about saving their partner from uh, addiction. And he said, as long as you protect them from the bottom, you'll scrape along it. (laughs) And, And that they need to hit it. You rob them of the rock bottom, which in truth of all types of desire of behavior change, we are so externally focused that we forget that if we were to invest in ourselves, just a bit of that, 
that that act of self-love of of signing up for a course of reading a book of signing up for crushing codependency if we do that it is actually the invitation to the other person to do the same in the because you're modeling the behavior you're modeling the behavior investing in self and we know that works with addicts because that's what an intervention is it says i will no longer feed this choice you're making and i love you so much that this is what i'm willing to do and i will not stand anymore for this that's an act of self of rescuing self of, of reclaiming self and that is always what makes it so the other person is invited at least to step into their own power by stepping into ours. That to me is the most powerful thing. Yes. Can I say one more thing, even though I yes. said I wasn't going rock to it. rock it. One other thing about the addiction thing and about being codependent in relationships is that when we're saving as the Russell brand thing, when we're trying, when we're not allowing the bottom to happen because we're lying to the work and we're getting them out of things financially, we're also colluding with the lowest, part of that person we say we love oh shit colluding with we are we are joining hands with the lowest part of them to keep them there wow i never thought about that word the colluding part there really kicks you right in the in whatever part or doesn't feel good to be kicked any part. So I hope, I hope that this was illuminating for people so much. We would love you to join us. Yeah. I'm, I'm so excited that we created this because you and I have both spoken about, you know, there, the desire for there to be like a, a path because it's something that, you know, can take 10 years to resolve. If you're led through the steps in the right order, in the right, right way, invited to take those steps then you can actually move through this stuff pretty quick and begin uh, creating the type of life and relationships you want. And there's no creating a relationship that you want without actually completely changing your life too, in such a beautiful way. The reclamation of self in love is the reclamation of self full stop. Yep. It's actually like a GPS or a map or a methodology. So it doesn't matter where you are on your path. If this is the first time you've ever heard the word codependency, it doesn't matter. You don't have to know more than you know right now. If you know that you're in pain, if you know that you're exhausted, if you know that you don't want to keep over-functioning, overdoing, worrying about other people the way that you do, and that is what makes you feel worthy of being in a relationship. That's all you need to know is that you're willing to do something different, be led by two really nice and kind of funny people, but who know a lot about go to Benazi. And you end up with, it's basically how to do it, right? It's like a playbook of what is the next right action? What is the next right action? And collecting the information you know, that, that you need to know, from yourself. So Mark and I don't know what that is. I just know how to tell you where to find it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we just know the questions to ask for you to look within to find the answer. Because we trust that you know what's best for you. Without a doubt. Because you do. Of course. That'd be codependent of us if we told you what was best for you. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, Terry, thanks so much for being here again. And thank you for creating this course with me. I'm uh, beyond honored and always excited to share a conversation with you because I know they continue to be such high value for the people listening. So can you let people know where to find you, please? Sure. TerryCole.com, T-E-R-R-I-C-O-L-E.com. And on Insta, same, at Terry Cole. Cole. Yep. And, and I got a YouTube channel with 
million free things and I've got a show. <laughs> you know, you have a podcast. I do called the Terry Cole Show. Which you must check out. That's how I discovered Terry Cole's work. And thank you so much for being here. If you're interested in signing up for the course, go to crushingcodependency.com and we'll see you all again soon. Thank you. Join us. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love. 